You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I was a high woman and a mother from my youth. For my children, I did what I had to do. My family left Honduras when they killed the Sandinistas. We followed our coyote through the dust of Mexico. Every one of them except for me survived, and I am still alive. I was a healer. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the eponymous 2019 album from country supergroup The High Women. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and with me today I'm very excited to have CFP regular Carla Godwin and our network mate and host of the Sectarian Review Podcast, Danny Anderson. Hey Carla and Danny, how's it going? Hey Victoria. Hey Victoria, thanks for having me on. Really excited to have you both. Uh, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new. Danny, since you're our guest, you go first. I, my name is Danny Anderson. I, as Victoria said, I host the Sectarian Review podcast on the network. And I, my day job, teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And um, I have been guesting on the City of Man, talking about country music through the decades, and I suspect that's why you asked me to come on the show, um, but I, I kind of grew up listening to country music, and so I have um, a little bit of a connection to the movement that this album was particularly referring to and or springing out from, and so I'm really excited to do that. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Uh, that That is why I wanted to have you on also, just because I really like uh, talking to you. I've been on the Sectarian Review several times, uh, so I thought it would be cool to have you on this show. Thanks. Uh, Carla, tell us who you are. Hey, um, I'm Carla Godwin, and as Victoria said, I've been, I think, from the beginning, a panelist on Christian Feminist Podcast. Um and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota with my kids. Uh, I My day job right now is as an operations director at a foundation. Um, I have a master's degree in English. I worked for several years in progressive faith work um, and for a while uh, was the founder and director of an organization called She Is Called that worked toward uh, gender equity in, in church leadership. So yeah, that's me. Thanks, Carla. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I currently live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our cat, Dorothy Parker, who is currently sitting in front of my computer and may make herself known uh, soon. For money, I am the digital community manager for a startup serving uh, women entrepreneurs all over the country and uh, for fun I like to do this show and talk to my smart amazing friends Uh, so I'm excited to get going on that today as I said we're talking about the high women and their first record so it stands to reason that we would start by talking a little bit about who they are as a band and why we want to talk about this album Uh, Carla start us off who are the high women and why are they important to talk about for this show um, so the High Women are a group of four female country artists, including Maren Morris, Natalie Henby, Amanda Shires, and Brandi Carlisle, all of whom also have their own solo country careers as singers, singers and songwriters. Um, they also often collaborate with and include another female artist on their songs and projects, so the group is a little bit fluid in terms of, of membership, but those are the four core members. Apparently, the group was Shire's idea and came out of conversations around the lack of representation of women in country radio. Um, While she was touring, she started taking notes while she traveled in her tour bus of how many women were played in these country stations or in these towns, country stations as she drove through and started to compare how many. And the difference was staggering that there were far more men played than women played. And um, she wondered how to draw attention to that gap and to the incredible female artists who were actually creating music and could fill that gap (laughs) to demonstrate in part that the disparity wasn't for lack of content, but for lack of intent. 
She wanted to exhibit the incredible female talent that existed and to, to illustrate that lack that she was trying to fill. Um, and she, it, it seems to me like, I love that what she did was not just be like, hey, you all should know about these artists, but she like took one of the sort of uh, most recognizable um, male groups and just decided to like answer it and replicate it. So she started the group Highwaymen as a correspondent to the legendary male country group, The Highwaymen. <laughs> so the title track of the album, which is uh, the high the high women the self titled self titled album and track um, started with this sort of I mean that that song that the highwaymen is so recognizable and we know it so well and what she did was just sort of uh, create they created this song that was just kind of a gut punch kind of illustration by telling these women's stories that just illustrate how much we've missed by the silencing um, of women. And, and I think that because it was a correspondent to such a, such a like um, pinnacle male record, it, it just, I don't know, the first time I heard it, I literally had chills all over and just started shaking. Uh, it was a thing. Yeah, that me too. A total physical reaction. Like, I can't believe this is actually happening and I can't believe how much I needed this to happen. Exactly. Yes. Like we didn't even know what we were missing until there it was. Right. And then that just demonstrated the, the gap that had been there. Right. Um, they performed for the first time in 2019 at Loretta Lynn's 87th birthday concert concert and then released their self-titled album in September of the same year. Um, oh, I didn't the, know it was at her birthday. How perfect is that? Right. Isn't that wonderful? Um, the album topped the country and folk charts and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard charts and was nominated this year for the Academy of Country Music Awards Album of the Year, but did not win that honor. It instead went to a male, <laughs> to a man whose name I'm just not going to bother saying. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. He's probably good. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's <laughs> thanks, Carla. That's, uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, so that really kind of lays out, I think, the impetus for this episode as far as um, the canonicity of country music and women's voices and where they fit in. Um, as Carla said, we can't really talk about the high women without talking about the highwaymen first. Uh, so Danny, give us some more country music history. Um, who were are the highwaymen and uh, why are they important to the history of country music? Um, sure. Yeah. The, uh, so the highwaymen, you have to think about it almost as like kind of the last gasp of what we call the outlaw country music uh, or country movement in country music, uh, which is something that kind of began and, and was kind of invented almost as a marketing uh, term in the 1970s. And it's basically a reaction against the so the the outlaw country music or movement it, it began kind of as a reaction to kind of the homogenization homogenization of what they call the out the the you have this kind of producer driven country mat in that's out of nashville and once willie nelson kind of tires of being part of that system and moves to austin texas and starts and basically becomes Willie Nelson as we know and love today. I mean, that, that is a, uh, an invention of being away from Nashville and kind of becoming this bandana-wearing, pot-smoking um, person who could bring hippies and bikers together, right? And so, um, but that kind of opened the door for a lot of other acts uh, to kind of um, follow follow his lead. In the, uh, uh, the wake of that, you have people like Waylon Jennings and, and other people who kind of just become associated as outlaw country music. And it's, I guess, if you want to think about it as, as an, an analogy, it's kind of like grunge music um, was to rock radio in the early 90s. Like when that happens, it's like sort of this own different sounding movement that uh, runs alongside and along with kind of mainstream country music. And the outlaw country music uh, movement really becomes um, official when in 1976, I believe, they uh, pub the, they produce an album called Wanted the Outlaws. And it's basically kind of a, a, a compilation album with songs by Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, um, a guy named Tom Paul Glazer, a lot of these people we don't remember anymore. But interestingly enough, there was a woman included on that album, Jesse Coulter. And it's I want to just emphasize that because women then were kind of officially part of the movement from the beginning, right? But for whatever yeah, reason, yeah, and she's amazing. Yes, absolutely, right. Um, and but for whatever reason, that 
became much, I mean, entirely male dominated as a movement, right? And so the highway men is sort of like, kind of almost like the closing mythological statement of that whole movement. And it's, it's Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash. And, it's, and, and because in, once the outlaw movement becomes a thing, it even incorporates people who have been long established in mainstream country music like Johnny Cash. But um, so the Highway Men is, oh gosh, it came out in my youth, in mid 80s, 85 or something like that. And it, the famous song that Carlo alluded to that everybody kind of knows are these stories of like, uh, you know, bandits and uh, and people who don't live by society's rules who are kind of murdered by that society. And it's a way to mythologize them. And you really can see it as kind of a closing statement on the outlaw country move- movement in, uh, in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, that's basically the um, the story of the Highway Men album. And that's like where it comes from. What I think is like interesting to note is the fact that there's no women on the Highway Men. Right. Um, even though there was a woman on Wanted, the outlaws, right, the, the thing that instigated the uh, the movement. And I think that that tells you a lot about the lack of um, allowing women to be counted into that. There's no reason that Tanya Tucker could not have been counted as an outlaw singer. Right. Uh, but but she wasn't. And um, and so I think what I kept tripping over the name of this group <laughs> and, and, and just like logically, why didn't they call it the highway women? And then and then I feel like by just it's almost like regendering the name um highway yeah. men and and i think that it's actually a really brilliant like statement about um what had been done with that movement uh when it became entirely the domain of men yeah i think that's it's purposeful here um brandy carlisle has said in several interviews that uh, the title track and, and the title of the album is a direct answer to the kind of male dominance that you're talking about and the kind of large looming um, male figures that make up the highwaymen as well. Um, but before we get into the original song and how this title track answers it, um, there's one more kind of event in the history of country music that I think we need to talk about, a more recent event. Uh, most often referred to as Tomato Gate, uh, which happened in 2015. And uh, what happens is radio consultant Keith Hill talks to a kind of insider magazine, Country Radio Air Check, uh, and says, women are the tomatoes in Country Radio's salad, meaning they have a place, but they should be used sparingly. Uh, which, like, I don't know what kind of gross salads this guy is eating that have only lettuce in them but okay (laughs) whatever that metaphor is terrible um also this research that he's objecting to um i found out when i was researching this episode that the number that he thinks is too high on country radio is 19 percent of songs were by women less than 20 percent is too much like what i just Oh, that's yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's just such a, to me, it's just such an unbelievable, uh, like, I can't, I can't even understand the logic of it. You know what I mean? There isn't a logic to it. It's just an entirely um, misogynistic way to see the, I mean, obviously, right? I'm not stating anything, but I think there are moments that I forget that, that people hold the view that women are somehow just like an additive. They're not like human or they're not actually the thing that they are. They're not country music artists. They're just like an additive to the real artists. Like, do you know, and it's- Yeah, add add women and stir. Yeah, that it's that blatant and that blunt sometimes and that it still exists. I guess I I just keep thinking we're making progress. And so I'm surprised when there are moments like that that it just still exists so blatantly, you know? Yeah, and I mean- 20% 20% is too much space? Like, come on. Uh, but at least at least we have the high women to, to speak <sighs> against that. And, uh, and, and they, they pull no punches, uh, which is, is wonderful. Um, um, Victor, can I pop yeah, in one please, second? Yeah, please do. It's interesting um, because... It, we, I went, over the course of doing those episodes for the City of Man, we kind of addressed 
the prominence of women in all these various decades. And the 70s is kind of like the low point uh, in a lot of ways in terms of like radio play for women country singers. Um, and I wonder how much of it has to do with the dominance of the outlaw country music and how women couldn't be considered outlaw um, in terms of that marketing niche. But um, the 80s actually is pretty heavily represented by women um in country on country radio and um as i grow i'm growing up listening to that format my parents are from west virginia and so when they moved they moved to cleveland before i was born but that's what we listened to in the house so i'm, I'm a very kind of odd person i think in a lot of ways but that's one of the ways in which i was sort of an oddball but uh listening to country music is the only person i knew that did but um but like Reba McIntyre, like dominated the charts throughout the entire decade of the 80s. And many, many great like women groups uh, also were very prominent um, throughout the 80s. Um, Dolly Parton has this great career. But um, yeah. in addition to that, um, even people that we don't remember so much, like Sweethearts of the Rodeo, are just like putting out tremendous albums and, and doing great chart work. Somehow by the 90s, that evaporates. And so I think that when he's citing these stats he's like citing stats that are unfortunately true but i don't know why <laughs> that that's interesting to hear you say that about the 90s i and this is maybe a, a good place to talk about the the kind of music we grew up on and and what our experiences of country music um were uh when we were younger i i am a 90s kid i was i was born in the mid 80s and uh for me i feel like all my country music was dominated by these like strong, tough women. Um, you mentioned Reba and Dolly. Uh, the CFP has done a Dolly Parton episode uh, by which I stand very strongly. She's so important to not only my uh, feminist development, but my religious development too. Um, her theology is super <laughs> weird and interesting. Uh, but Reba McIntyre, um, Faith Hill, Shania Twain, uh, Martina McBride, I say often that I think uh, the song Independence Day taught me what feminism was when I was like five, uh, because it's it's all about um, sort of taking revenge against an abusive spouse. She burns his house down, and she burns his house down in the video, and it's a huge big deal. So fun to sing, like sing along with that one. Oh, oh I was doing it like last week while washing dishes loud as I could in the kitchen. That song is still amazing. Yeah, so I I do think that this there is like a really strong presence of women in country music. I would argue into the '90s, um, but it it does seem to go away um, in favor of sort of later bro country and and these other things. Yeah, I, you're right. Um, there are there are sort of the uh, the the Faith Hill and the Shania Twain particularly are just gigantic excuse me gigantic stars. Um, in that era, but the proportion of them are much less. I think they kind of soak up all the, the female room um, themselves. Yeah, that's probably ways. fair. Um, with Martina McBride, though, you're right. Um, but I think you have a lot of the hat acts of the 90s that kind of remasculinize, I guess, country music a little bit. Um, and then by the the 2000s is you start seeing the rise of bro country um, and that just completely evaporates from country radio, at least um, any kind of pro an appropriate presence for women. Um, Carla, do you want to weigh in about uh, your personal history with country music? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I grew up in Nebraska um, in a pretty conservative Christian environment and actually country was about the only thing I was allowed to listen to besides um, Christian music. So I listened to a lot of country and I had similar to, to you, Victoria, I had a sense of a lot of women that I listened to, the ones that you listed included, and then including uh, Trisha Yearwood and some others, you know, like that I, that I just loved. And so I listened to a lot of women sing, sing country. Um, and do think that that, that there was a sort of a surge of, of, um, artists in the eighties. Um, I think that, 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 tapering I'm, my my brain is going to curiosity on like the resurgence in christian circles of complementarianism and those types of things in the 90s and wondering if that has any play on on or any impact on country music uh i think that when we get to the the article that we're going to look at in a little bit um he kind of points out the connections between religion and country music and um i am curious sometimes the relationship between uh, religious movements and ideas and how that ends up playing out in our in what we take in in terms of music um so 
that's just a curiosity. I don't know that I have anything super profound to say about it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think you could definitely be right about that, um, especially in terms of like not necessarily historical traditionalism, but like the specter of a traditionalism that maybe never really quite existed. Uh, there's this idea that um, that country music is about Americana and tradition and not about politics, and that division is, I think, um, a, a false one, uh, which gets us to our, our first article, which is very short. Um, it's a, a piece from the Texas Standard uh, called They're Nobody's Tomatoes, The High Women Aim to Close Country Music's Gender Gap. Um, I already mentioned the statistic that inspired Tomato Gate, the fact that um, this one uh, researcher says that 19% of women on country radio is too much, and uh, Amanda Shires and Brandy Carlisle create the high women as an answer to this and say, you know, no, we're going to be bigger than that. Representation is important. Um, I think that assertion about the connection of politics to the history of country music is one that doesn't really get talked about enough. So uh, what do you guys think? Is is country music political? And if yes, whose politics? Um, I'll, I'll let Carla go first if she wants. I was totally trying to let you go first. Come on. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, that's okay. I, I, um, I mean, I think that there's sort of a, a general impression as to the politics of country music, um, that it is, you know, Americana, it is conservative, it is um, trying to sort of uh, idealize or, or draw from like a nostalgic ideal of what America is and can be, um, and pulls from our, what, um, from rural areas and rural ideologies, uh, right? And, um, I think it's one of the most interesting political divides in our country right now, that of urban and rural and how those things play out. And I think country music often stands as a bit of a, of a representation of a culture um, that has in recent years been politically conservative. Um, so I, I find that to be very interesting. I think that um, the high women is, is, intentionally inclusive it has what has been coined as the first gay country song um on the on the album and we'll talk some about that um and and it it just is um intentionally inclusive in the way that in several of the songs on this album but even in the way that these artists work with um artists who are outside of country artists of color artists who have different political ideals or or maybe the same political ideals as this group but perhaps breaking from what would be seen as as uh, traditional country ideals um so but i think that that's that's one of the things i find interesting in general about women's activism and and uh feminism and how really early on in in uh our country's history, women were some some of the some of the reason that women started speaking is because they were abolitionists, and so that sense of uh, um, discrimination being experienced uh, in in one intersection of life that then starts to expand your view of what discrimination feels like, right? Um, I think even just the name "high women" and its tradition and what you're just what you were describing, Danny, like coming out of the outlaw. Um, movement, outlaw country movement, I think is interesting because in some ways they're just saying being a woman was what was, uh, was what made them outlaws. <laughs> Their acts, they weren't, they weren't committing criminal acts. They were committing acts as women or as black women. Right. And that was, that was what was causing, that's what caused their deaths. So I think that it's interesting to like, look at the idea that just being women was their act of, of, of outlaw, you know, of, of, of breaking law. Um, so that's my, that's my thought. I, I want to talk about the difference between the four, uh, people that we meet in the verses of the highwaymen and the four women that we meet in the verses of high women. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to make Danny talk about class because that's what Danny does best. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I do think, um, 
while everything that Carla said about the history of country music um, is certainly true for recent history, I think there's some kind of hidden liberalism in earlier um, country movements that I'd, I'd like to hear Danny speak to. Uh, so can you talk about class, Danny? Gosh, okay. Um, yeah, so politics in general and country music are really, that's a complicated and long and, and surprisingly like various uh, conversation to have. And so I'm just going to kind of hit some highlights and this is very disorganized in my head. So I apologize if this is hard to follow. Um, but when we think of even country music as a style, we think of it as overwhelmingly white, first of all. Right. But early on, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and like early forms of country, what we now know what the, the roots of country music are, if you listen to someone like Jimmy Rogers, for example, it's kind of indistinguishable from blues. And so there was a way in which um, like black and white musicians from the Appalachian region were making kind of the same kind of music. Um, and it's through kind of the, when the radio and the record industry emerges, we need a way to sell these two markets. Um, those kinds of um, that marketing decisions is really imposes divisions, uh, class divisions upon uh, the music in the ways that we kind of come to understand them. So um, that's the first thing. And so it, there is a way in which the way we sell records to people drive the politics of, of class and, 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 and gender and everything else. Um, and so so there's that, first of all. But second of all, I do wonder. Um, before the Americana movement like begins, we have a whole episode uh, dedicated to Americana alt country uh, on the City of Man series. I don't know if that's out yet. Uh, we recorded those things over the last two years. I don't even remember when anything was recorded. I don't remember what I said on any of those. But um, the uh, that seems to me the place where kind of what we consider liberal or radical politics would be housed um, in country radio is when, when there are political songs, they are extremely like right wing and sometimes like even fascist, right? I mean, any, these Toby Keith uh, war songs are just like downright, you know, nationalistic and, and jingoistic, right? And so when country does get overtly political on the radio, it tends to be to the right because in recent times, Americana, I think is where more liberal acts will go. And then before that, the folk scene in the 1960s, yeah. 1950s and 1960s. Um, I think the, the style of country music that is going to be talking about liberal politics is going to be marketed to folk uh, folk fans and not country fans. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I think that I, those are all ways of, I guess, talking around class. But, um, but I do think that um, the politics of country radio are pretty consistently right wing with some exceptions. And when there are exceptions, it's somebody like- Can we like talk about uh, Loretta Lynn? Well, okay, so Loretta Lynn, I mean, also is like a big Trump supporter, right? Um, yeah. She's like, she's definitely for the working class, but she's vocally pro-Trump because there's this sort of distrust. She embodies the kind of rural distrust of coastal elites, right? Um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, one thing to keep in mind about people like that and and Merle Haggard, I think some of his politics are really hard to nail down, first of all. And I think what you get is a sort of like Texas form of politics that's very individualistic. And so, lived, so I, sorry, I'm interrupt for just like two seconds. I lived in Texas for a little while and the politics down there in terms of libertarianism, like the individualistic. Um, anyway, it's what you're saying uh, just resonates deeply. So sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> No, no, it's fine. Yeah. And so, yeah, so people like Willie Nelson and, and I don't know, Kinky Friedman, like all these, uh, you know, like sort of Texas politics, when they look liberal, it's based on sort of individualistic uh, ideas. When they look conservative, it's based on the same thing, right? And so I, I, the country radio, like mainstream country politics are really interesting. Um, I know I didn't really talk specifically about class. <laughs> That's okay. I, um, you said mostly what I wanted you to say, um, <laughs> just in terms of like race is more complicated than we think it is in terms of country yeah. music. And, and and also like so in recent times, you do finally have black artists who have been 
widely vacant from country radio with the exception of a few people like um, Charlie Pride. Uh, Charlie Pride. Um, in, in Hispanic artists, you see every once in a while, Freddie Fender, Johnny Rodriguez, um, those, those, you know, few and far between minority acts, right? Um, recently in country music, you do see more black apps acts because I think you've got an embrace of hip hop as a popular style. And, and, and so I think, but even those black acts are kind of like whitewashed a little bit by the format. And so I, I, here's, I'm making, I guess, in my mind, a class argument that the, the, the merchandising of country music is what kind of drives a lot of the racial and gender politics of it. Um, and I, I suspect Victoria, you should talk about the Dixie chicks at some point. I think we're just supposed to call them the chicks now, Danny. Oh, right. I, I forgot about that. <laughs> Although they realize no one's going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Um, I mean, I do love them. I think we should, maybe we can come back to that. Um, I might make two recommendations because I couldn't choose, and I will mention the Dixie Chicks in my second one. Um, but, I mean, I, I do want to talk about I mentioned Loretta Lynn earlier, and I, I do want to talk about when liberal politics shows up in country music. Uh, so I used to teach this class on feminist theory. My like intro to feminist theory class when I taught was a class about music videos. And I summarized the waves of feminism through popular songs. And when I talked about the second wave, um, I sometimes I played Fist City and sometimes I played The Pill and my students who were you know born in the 2000s um, could not believe that that was a country song and I I just kind of can't really stop thinking about that because I feel like that's such a narrow vision of not just politics in general but like women and power and country music. Um, I remember a student being so shocked when I played that song and she said Taylor Swift would never sing that song, Um, which I mean also we could say that 2020 Taylor Swift probably would sing that song even if uh, 2005 or 2006 Taylor Swift wouldn't. But yeah, so what does that mean that like this stereotype despite evidence to the contrary still exists. Um, are you asking me that question? I, um, anyone? I mean, how, how come my student didn't expect Loretta Lynn to be invested in the availability of birth control, I guess? Well, I mean, people like Loretta Lynn, I mean, Loretta Lynn specifically really are boundary breakers. I mean, they're, that, they're, she was among the first country, female country radio stars, right? Um, and I mean, Kitty Wells, I think, is largely credited, credited as the, like the, the real kind of like um, trendsetter there. But, um, but Loretta Lynn is pretty early on someone who had to kind of face the sexism of that industry, right? And so I think that w- there is a spunkiness <laughs> To her, and I, I, Laura Lynn's one of my favorite like artists. Actually, I, I love her, and uh, and so I think that uh, for this very reason, she has this kind of like um, I don't know, like uh, like pride in in herself, right? That comes through in her music, and at the time she's doing those songs, she is up against a um, uh, an, uh, an industry that is extremely hostile towards women performers, right? And, and so I think that it shouldn't be as surprising as it is that she was um, kind of bold in ways that are unexpected to us today. Carla, any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I think I was just particularly drawn into Danny's argument about marketing, that like, uh, it, it seems to me like it's what get, gets pushed to which audience. And um, that, that wasn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. And so in terms of the politics of, of the genre, it tends to be related to uh, our, our economy and our marketing as much as it is to uh, the actual like innate politics of a particular genre. Um, 
and and how it gets pushed or marketed. I just found that to be super interesting. That's probably still true here, right? I mean, we mentioned Tomato Gate, but we have not yet talked about the Me Too movement, uh, which I think is is also fairly central to um, why the high women happen when they do. Um, but we should probably jump into our discussion of the album itself. Uh, oh, Real quick, I just want to point the list. Maybe I'll, I'll save it for a recommendation. Never mind. Okay. Um, so we're going to jump into the album itself by way of a really beautiful article by friend of the show and a former Christian humanist network mate, Chris Gertz, uh, who wrote a really cool article for the Christian blog, The Anxious Bench. Uh, Carla, will you take us into Chris's article? Yeah, I'll do my best here. Um, so I, I was super drawn in by his intro because um, he draws an analogy between the beginning of Christianity with the witness of the women at the tomb and the beginning of the of country music. It's so gorgeous, the intro. Can you just read like the first couple of sentences? I would love to. Thank you for that invitation because that's why I, there's no way to do it the way that he did it without just reading it. So he says it opens this way. Like Christianity itself, country music begins with women professing hope in the face of death. The most enduring song from country's founding family is Can the Circle Be Unbroken, a gospel tune about the funeral of a woman performed by the woman who was country's first great singer, Sarah Carter, to the accompaniment of the woman who was country's first great guitarist, Maybelle Carter. Yet country music has always been more comfortable with its religious than its feminist, feminine origins. That, that sentence right there <laughs> was, was amazing. Um, because I, I think just that he, he draws such a clear, I don't know, I've talked a lot about how, uh, or, or have heard a lot of, of preachers in progressive spaces talk about the idea of Christianity beginning with the witness of the women at the tomb and uh, us not being willing or want, wanting to look at that and, and honor women's voices. And so that he did, just like drew that analogy between that and country music and that country is is a lot more comfortable with its religious roots than its than its feminine roots. Um, I just thought it was great. It just set up it set up the whole thing so well. Um, so he goes on to write uh, about the about the album and and talks about his curiosity as he listened um, to the album of, in the Christian themes that pop up in it and Heaven Is a Honky Tonk and some other songs. And he he notes that in the opening track in the signature song that two of the women in that song. Um, die at the hands of Christians, of outraged Christians is how he says it. And he notes that one is the 17th century New England girl with a spiritual gift of healing um, who dies in the Salem witch trials. And then the other um, is a a female preacher. Um, And so he started to to think about that that fourth verse, uh, which goes, I was a preacher, my heart broke for all the world, but teaching was unrighteous for a girl. In the summer, I was baptized in the mighty Colorado. In the winter, I heard the hounds and knew that I'd been found. And in my Savior's name, I laid my weapons down, but I am still around. Um, and that, first of all, that uh, that verse, when I heard it, I literally wept. I like almost had to sit down and just weep. And obviously still, it gets me. Um, but he was curious after listening to that verse, if it was based on, um, on, a, on, a, on a historical figure. And so he posed that question on Twitter and Brandy Carlisle actually responded and she said it was a hybrid of several women. And so that that made him wonder um, if he could find some stories of these women. And what he found was a book by Catherine Breckis um, that she published in 1998 called Strangers and Pilgrims, Female Preaching in America, 1740 to 1845. And she highlights a hundred different um, women who spoke, who preached, uh, during that time and um, and the violence that they suffered. And she starts with a Quaker woman named uh, Ann Wilkinson and how she was beaten with stones and brick bats after preaching in Philadelphia in 1782. Um, goes on to talk about a shaker, uh, about the shaker founder, Ann Lee, um, who was accused of being a witch and was repeatedly beaten by mobs until she was bruised and, and uh, battered. Um, he goes on to talk about uh, other women, white abolitionists, Abby Kelly and Fanny Wright, who, who endured um, abuse and violence and went on to talk about um, uh, African-American women who, who dared to preach is the way he talks about it. Rebecca Jackson and Zilpha Elaw, um, who literally would preach um, and, and watch angry white men 
with their hands full of stones stand there and listen to them. Um, so the amount of threat that these women and, and violence that these women endured was was real. And um, yeah, so I think in summary, he he demonstrates very well um, how preaching and, and pastoring has been long considered um, the territory of men and how women who have answered that call have actually suffered uh, greatly for having done so. Uh, thank you, Carla. That was a, a really beautiful summary of a really beautiful piece that I hope all of our listeners read. Um, we've been talking a lot about the presence of women's voices and, and who gets to be heard and when. Uh, so I, I want to talk about uh, the people who get to speak in this title song. Um, so in The Highwaymen, we meet a highwayman, a sailor, a dam builder, and an astronaut. In The High Women, we meet an immigrant mother, a healer, a freedom writer, and, um, as Carla just uh, said at some length, a preacher. How do these sets of people journey differently, and, um, and what does it mean that we get the same refrain, this I am still around in both uh, songs? Is, is the immortality the same? Is it different? Um, I know that's lots of questions, but uh, first, can can we talk about these two groups of people and and how they're different? That's actually really good. I hadn't I hadn't listened to Highway Men um, for a long time, and so I, I kind of forgot about the the astronaut person. I, I mean, I that's think the worst this, verse of the song, it, by the way. <laughs> I'm remembering it now, and it is it is very. Uh, hammy uh in a lot of ways i and so i guess in general you've got this idea these figures who are kind of like pathfinders and and uh you know sort of um pushing humankind's you know uh whatever uh progress into the world right these sort of explorer types um and, and colonizer types even perhaps um whereas the the ones that we're talking about in, on the High Women album are much more about like justice-seeking community-building figures, right? And, and I feel like there's a there's definitely there's sort of this like lone wolf versus nurturing um, uh, nurturing pack sort of dichotomy uh, dichotomy going on there. Yeah, it's just nurture nurture is all over. Um, the high women and I, I want to talk more about that um, we see the immigrant mother in the first verse um, her motherhood is central and uh, in the chorus uh, we carry the sons you can only hold uh, their immortality seems to come from the power of women to give birth um, at least in large part whereas the immortality uh, in the original song just seems to come from the fact that history is history i i don't know can you guys help me out with that it's like a myth building uh, to me like the highwaymen is is sort of a uh, like a myth building thing of the things that men do right i'm a highwayman i'm a sailor sailor i'm a builder i'm an astronaut like these are the things like a little boy might answer if you asked a little boy the question what do you want to be when you grow up i mean he probably won't say a highwayman but like he might say a cowboy though right right a cowboy for sure yeah that kind of thing so i i I feel like there's sort of a a mythology of maleness in the highwayman um that that you know doesn't even necessarily reflect the male experience but is a is a ideology or something and uh in the highwayman i feel like we have these women having these experiences that that like i don't know that that feel uh embodied or something they don't feel they don't feel as mythic they feel like these are these are embodied moments um and uh yeah i don't i don't know i mean they are they are mythic they are these these sort of um very distinct moments of heroism really but they are based, like we were talking about, in in the body and in in nurturing and in the sort of relationship that she has with her environment um, and how that environment judges her for her acts as a woman. 
Yeah, and I, f- I feel like there's like a, a way in which the the male stories are all very kind of almost antisocial. Like they're all sort of about the rugged individual leaving society to create a new world of his own. Whereas these are these the revision is more about like people, you know, perfecting their society by by serving others kind of, right? And, and I, I just feel like it's a much, uh, I mean, I don't think it's accidental, the, the complete inversion. Yeah, there's, there's community in every single verse. Um, in the first verse, for my children, I did what I had to do. In the second verse, I laid hands upon the world. Um, the third verse about the Freedom Rider, um, you know, the, the bus is full of people and her mother asks her if it's worth giving up her life for other people. Um, and then the, the preacher that, that Carla talked about a lot, um, her heart breaks for all the world, right? Not just some of it. So I, I love this. I love that point about um, women being invested in community and it being, um, even if it's a, a painful good, it's a, it's a good um, for everyone. Should we move on to some other songs now, maybe? Well, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this, again, like, I don't know that there's a way to kind of communicate what this song has meant. Like, it's so embodied for me. Um, but I absolutely, I think you're right, Danny, to say that I don't think it was, it, it, that it was intentional to actually totally turn that thing on its head, to take what was, we can call it masculine energy and a masculine ideology and actually, like, not just not just place women in those masculine roles, but actually turn this upside down and say, what would a a song about, uh, you know, I I have a hard time with the dichotomy sometimes that I'm setting up here, but what would a song with a feminine energy and a feminine um, way of being do for heroism? What would that sound like and what would that look like? And um, so rather than just taking what is masculine and replacing the the person with a with a woman it's actually saying i want to tell a holy female story i want to tell a holy female heroic experience you know and frame that as a thing that 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 looks like what a woman would experience and and then call it heroism you know what i mean yeah i that's so i'm going to cry to you now um but i I think that's so true that it's it's about um, I I keep saying when I talk about how much I love this album uh, that I love this album because it is weirdly a popular album about canonicity, <laughs> um, which is such a nerdy thing to say, but um, but it it's it's making an argument not just for canonical inversion or inclusion, but it's making an argument for as you said, Carla, completely separate canon that can stand on its own, like experiences that just are different. And I think that's so radical. I, I love that with all my heart. Yes, <laughs> that can stand on their stories that are so different, they can stand on their own. They have as much mythology in them. They have as much power in them. They don't actually have to be part of a separate canon that doesn't have a value for those things, you know, um, they can create their own. And this, this album's popularity, I think has, has illustrated that. Um, so yeah, I adore it. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about some more songs that we adore from this record other than the title track. Um, Danny, what song would you like to break down for us? I looked, I wanted to look at, um, the song, I believe it was a, an Amanda Shire song, um, Cocktail and a Song. Um, and I, you know, as a father of two daughters, I, I sort of, I don't know, whatever, maybe that's why I was drawn to this, uh, to this song. But it's basically about a, a, a father who's dying. Um, and, and it's, well, it's, it's he's, it's about a, a girl whose father is dying. Let me put it that way. And, and her sort of relationship with him at the very end, when they kind of know it's inevitable, and there's sort of like a a, um, a beautiful sort of acceptance of just being this being natural, right? Um, and and it's it's a, a beautiful melody first of all. Um, that's kind of what stood out to me first, and then I was drawn into the lyrics then. But the lyrics are actually really um, kind of it goes along with what we're saying here about the transition from this kind of masculine form of outlaw 
ness to a, a more feminine version of outlawness, right? And what that kind of means. Um, the first opening line is daddy passed me his bottle of tequila it said time's running out we're going to have to pretend it's a margarita right and so i think there's just sort of it's a funny kind of line but it's also this kind of passing on of a tradition right but it's being changed in that process um and that kind of carries through all the way to the end of the song um when you know well let me just kind of read the lyric here and then he stared down at his shoes through the pink begon excuse me through the pink begonias blue said daddy all i want is your silver butt buck belt buckle and maybe your black stetson hat and both of us laughed about that and so there's almost like the idea about the black hat as being a symbol for the sort of masculine outlaw um she wants that, but realizes it's funny, right? And so I think she wants it as a joke almost, right? Um, and, and I kind of think that that almost captures the essence of this album in the way that it is sort of carrying on in a new way, in a better way, I would say, the the tradition that inherited from the highway men, um, like ancestor, right? And so, um, and just so like, I think thematically, it's really interesting. But it's a beautiful song, too. And, you know, and as a father who, you know, someday, hopefully, will uh, be leaving this world before my children. And uh, it's just also very moving to me. Yeah, I love that. I love that analysis. And I think um, it's just interesting to think about even this as a, a like, what, the, what women are asking to have passed on to them, as you were indicating there, Danny, like, what is it that they want from their sort of country fathers, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and what happens as you go forward? I like the fact that it allows some relationship between what has been and what's coming. Um, and like, like doesn't seek to sever that connection, you know? Um, but lets it, lets it be part of the, the story. Yeah. You've always been your daddy's girl. Nothing's going to change that now. Right. 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 Let's that relationship stay. I like that. That's lovely. I um, That's not a song that I listen to over and over from this record. Um, it's good, as all of them are good, uh, but I, I feel like I have a new appreciation for it now after hearing your analysis, Danny, so thank you for that. My, my pleasure. <laughs> I almost <laughs> cried when I was talking about it, but I held off. Oh, well, I, I, then, you know, let's just make it three for three. That's fine. We, uh, we like crying around here uh you can still have your masculinity even if you cry we'll let you uh, i'm a major crier so yes um <laughs> uh okay carla what song would you like to discuss um it was super hard for me to pick um because i love so many songs on this album but i think one of the ones that resonated just personally for me um besides the high women um is my name can't be mama um, I am the mother of, of two children, and um, this song, I think, it just cracked me up in part because it, I, first of all, the idea that my name can't be mama is just such a real thing that, like, once you're a mama to those kids, that is your that is your name. They don't think of you as the individual that you are other than that. They think of you as mama, which has all the implications of, you know, having shared a body and, <laughs> and being the, the meter of their needs and all of those things. Um, you become a different thing in their eyes than what you've known yourself to be your whole life. Um, my name, Carla, is, is, means something entirely different when my children call me Carla in, in ways. It's just such a strange thing to hear. Right. Um, but I think that, um, the idea that I just need a day, I just need a day where, where my name isn't mama, where that identity is, uh, is something that I've set aside just for the day. And, um, in this song, it, it starts with, um, with her basically having a hangover. Like she wakes up, uh, with her head spinning from the night uh, that went too late. And she's like, man, I used to be able to sleep this off and let the shame just melt away. But now there are tiny feet in the hallway already calling out my name, which is in this case, mama. And what I love is that she throughout the song is saying, it's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't want to hold your tiny hand. It's just that right this minute, I need a break. I need a break for today. And uh, it made me think of when I was a kid, uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and a very busy and productive woman. Um, and she she said, uh, at one point she said, we're gonna have a mom's dead day. 
And that's how she framed it. She just said, I need to not do anything today. So mom's dead. You can't talk to me. I won't answer. You have to do the day yourselves. And she left at like she was home, but she just literally wouldn't answer. <laughs> and so this whole thing of my name can't be mama. And I'm, I'm going to do the other things that I am for today. I'm going to lay here and be hungover, or I'm going to go and, and do a thing that I would have done before my name was mama. Um, I think was just is just a is such a uh, a real experience of motherhood where you just ache for those days because you never actually get it back. You never actually shake that title of mama once you have it. Um, and and I like that the way she frames it is that she doesn't want to shake it. She wants to be mama, but in order to keep going as mama for today, she needs not to be. Um, and I, I liked that a lot as a as a way to think about it. So. Yeah, this song, this song resonated. The one thing that I sort of wished it would have, it had had, or like a, an an addition to it would have just been like a, um, the mama who's off to work or the mama who I actually have to finish the Zoom call so I can't be mama for the next hour. Uh, you know, those kinds of things um, that are also a mama's experience when she has the, the sort of sense of being torn between mama and another identity. So that song like makes me feel so guilty um, <laughs> because of my poor wife, my wonderful wife, Kim, like, um, because this is totally her experience, right? Um, I could be there all day. Um, and my kids will just like wait for my wife to get home for some reason to ask them, ask her to do something for them. And, and the cats do the same thing. It's, it's unbelievable. Like the cats won't ask me to feed them. <laughs> But as soon as Kim walks through the door, they come to her, right? And so there is such a burden that women, like uh, that, that women who are mothers bear uh, in in raising children. And I really felt it uh, from from listening to that song. Yeah, I um I don't think I can speak to this the way you two can as someone who does not have children. But I will say. Um, something that I think is important about this song and the way it fits into this album is something we haven't really touched on enough, which is how funny it is. Um, there's a lot of really great jokes on this record, and I, I love that this record allows womanhood to be jokey and sarcastic and, and multifaceted um, in the way that it does. Right. It absolutely is hilarious. There's so many good little one-liners throughout. And the other thing that it's multifaceted about is motherhood. Um, the, the different times and ways that motherhood pops into the album. Um, and it actually like looks at it from so many different angles and allows for so many different like emotional experiences of motherhood through the music um, that, yeah, I, I found. But it also doesn't limit women to motherhood. Like there are so many um, various female experiences that are, that are, uh, expressed. And like in a song, like the crowded table, crowded table, which is another one that I wanted to talk about it. It almost has that sense of like universal motherhood, like, um, imagining the whole world as your family, imagining everyone coming to the table at the end of the day to review the pains and the good things and that kind of thing. And so there's kind of this like, um, overarching motherhood that isn't actually doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you've had a child yeah um, um spiritual motherhood my therapist calls that um i i've been working through um i know i've spoken on this podcast a lot about um, my decision not to have children and how that's been a journey for me and um i've actually been listening to crowded table a lot um in the vein of that you you can sort of direct that energy to other people and places in in spiritual ways and um you know there's a reason that when when jesus tells um john and and mary to kind of come to each other uh son behold your mother mother behold your son um she is his mother now but also everyone's mother uh you know the the blessed mother of the church uh so yeah i think that um that that's an idea that i draw a lot of comfort from uh that is certainly present in that song yeah absolutely yeah the, the lyrics of that one just make me yeah it's great i want to house with a crowded table in a place by the fire for everyone um yeah it's like a, it's like a, uh, like you're saying, a spiritual sort of homemaking, 
like how are we making a spiritual home for everyone who exists and all of the things that that we deal with uh, on a daily basis you know and I, I think we sometimes kind of not exactly denigrate but belittle perhaps because it is often feminine um, hospitality as a Christian virtue and it, it's a very important virtue in terms of the way we are called to to welcome the world and and the way we're called to be the hands and feet of Christ to other people uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that we spent a little bit of time talking about this song too because I think it's it's certainly an important part of the uh, broader Christian vision of this record yeah, I, I was going to say that, Victoria, because I work at a Sisters of Mercy school, which I love. And we have our school kind of tries to ground everything we do in these four core Sisters of Mercy values, mercy, justice, service and hospitality. And so I, I find myself as somebody who's very devoted to the idea of hospitality. And um, and so that song really does um, speak a lot to me, too. And I do think that that is in American Christianity, probably one of the virtues we take least seriously um, to our detriment. And maybe I'm just thinking about hospitality a lot right now because, I mean, there is nothing I want more than to fill my house full of people at this moment when, you know, we're, we're so starved for human touch and, and all of this social distancing. And I just, I just want to hug people. <laughs> I just want to pass the peace at church. Um, you know, all of those things that, that are so much about um, the, the way the gospel grounds us in physicality. I miss them all so much. Yeah, that's, that's super real. Um, I think the other one, the other song that is worth talking about in terms of Christian ideology and doctrine is Heaven is a Honky Tonk. Um, feels worth bringing up uh, that song, uh, just in terms of the doctrine that's behind it and the idea that Jesus loves the sinners. And so heaven is going to be full of the, the you know, sort of cast-offs and, and, and country, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to remember. I need to find the lyrics here. Um, but uh, the good time in men, she says. Yes, she does say that. Yeah. Um, I think that that one, though, there's a certain uh, doctrine in it that I really love. All the junkies and the liars and the fool, all, fools, all the good time in men will leave their voices on the wind. It's a kindness we cannot repay them. There's a choir singing in a southern accent and a fiddle in the band. There's a hallelujah on the lips of every dying man. Mama, don't you cry when they're dead and gone. Jesus, he loves his sinners and heaven is a honky tonk. Um, I think that that idea it is core in my mind to Christian doctrine that like what heaven might feel like is not like a great choir, but actually like a country, a country bar. Um, and, and that that in some ways is, is, is comforting, you know. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea, the the community of it and the the realness of it too. Like I don't know. You know, if if Jesus sees the inside of us, then like then he does and we don't have to necessarily dress up all nice all the time and and you know, put on the face that we put on for other people because he sees the underneath anyway. Yeah, there is something really um, vulnerable and, and comforting about that, I think. Danny, you want to say anything else to that? Oh, no, no, I don't have anything to add to that. I love that song for exactly the same reasons that you guys, um, that you folks uh, um, elucidated. That was great, yeah. Okay, well, we're just at an hour, so we should probably uh, transition into our final and favorite segment of every CFP episode, uh, Passing On, where we recommend some things we think you should check out. Uh, Carla, what are you recommending for us? Um, I am going to go pretty simple and pretty straightforward with this, but Maren Morris's uh, uh, EP that she put out before Girl um, that has a track My Church on it is one of my favorite EPs. Um, and that track, My Church, is uh, just one of my favorite things to sing ever. Um, it resonates all the way through me. So I am just going to say, if you haven't listened to that yet, go find it and listen to it. Awesome. Uh, that is a, a really cool song. Thanks. Danny, what about you? Can I do two real quick? Sure. I'm um, probably going to do two, so you can. Okay. So one, I think I, I've come to this conclusion that I thought was going to be more unpopular than it was, but I do believe that Roseanne Cash 
is a greater artist than her father, John. John Whoa, Cash. hot as take. Great, as great as Johnny Cash was, I mean, and I, I don't, I don't think he wasn't great. But if you look at the totality of Roseanne's Cash, Roseanne Cash's career, not just the early songs, the kind of, kind of genre pushing songs from the early '80s, um, her big hits in the '80s. But beyond that, once she stopped being sort of a radio star and drifted into Americana land, I mean, just incredible artistry and, uh, and a, a range that her father never had. Uh, and so I, I highly recommend just sort of doing like a Roseanne Cash tour and, uh, and, and appreciating that. Um, but also, I think that um, going back to something we were talking about, Loretta Lynn um, and the early country female singers, uh, Kitty Wells kind of great breakout hit. Um, it wasn't God who made honky tonk angels is kind of the template for this album. Um, it's basically a kind of a, what do they call it? A kind of callback song or a, a response song. I think they called it um, to a, um, an answer song. That's what it's called to uh, Hank Thompson's the wild side of life, which kind of blames men falling astray on the women who tempt them. And so, um, and uh, Kitty Wells, Record. She didn't write this song, but she records and makes a huge hit. This song that said, "God didn't make the honky tonk angels. That's what men did, basically." And it's a, it's a very kind of strong feminist, uh, proto feminist country song, if you want to think of it in that way. Um, and I think it's very much in the spirit of this album. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I almost actually brought that song up because I think uh, Heaven is a honky tonk at least knows that uh, that that song exists. I think it's sort of oh. in the in the background there. They know their history. Yeah. Uh, thanks. So I'm also going to recommend two things. Um, one a little bit more tangential uh, to our discussion. Uh, I'm going to recommend the recent Netflix documentary about Taylor Swift, Miss Americana. Uh, she talks a lot about her political evolution and the idea that um, since she started as a country artist, she kind of can't have political opinions. Um, so a, a similar conversation to this conversation. Um, and if you are a sectarian review fan, you have heard me talk about Taylor Swift way too much, probably. Uh, so there's that too. And the second thing I want to recommend is uh a cover that Brandy Carlisle often does on tour of, um, I think, one of the best pop songs of all time, not just by a woman, but by anyone, uh, Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. Uh, we'll post that in the show notes. It's beautiful. Um, Brandy does it justice like I think no one can. Speaking of it, we really do have to go back just a second and talk about um, the song that she, It Won't Be For You, She If She Ever Leaves Me. Which is has been dubbed one of the first or one of the the first gay country songs. Oh no, um, we forgot that. Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, and it's such a good song. Um, it was written for Brandy Carlisle and her wife by uh, uh, Shires and Jason Isbell, who's her partner and one of the writers on this album. So um, it's a brilliant song where she basically is at a bar watching a cowboy hit on her her wife and uh, starts to create a story for him about how she's never going to leave me for you. If she does ever leave me, it won't be for a cowboy like you because she prefers perfume. <laughs> it's a great song. So, Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning that, Carla. It is a great song. Um, and I wish we had more time to talk about it. Um, please listen to that track and all the ones we've mentioned. This is a fantastic record. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and hearing us talk about it. Um, and I think that probably brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you want to just say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.com. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Godwin and Danny Anderson, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss the first two seasons of the Netflix series Dairy Girls. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.